In a matter of hours as we record this, the trial of the 45th president will begin in the Senate. But is this trial wise? Are the charges sound? For that matter, is the entire proceeding constitutional? Today on Uncommon Knowledge, three brilliant legal minds. Well, two anyway. I'll let you decide which one I have my doubts about. Three brilliant legal minds on the trial that is about to begin. Richard Epstein is a professor of law at NYU, a professor of law emeritus at the University of Chicago, and a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Andrew C. McCarthy is a senior fellow at, Nas at the National Review Institute and a National Review contributing editor. He served as assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Note that. Andy is the man here with practical experience putting people in the slammer. A fellow at the Hoover Institution, John Yu, served at, uh, during the administration of George W. Bush as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. Mr. Yu is a professor at the University of California Berkeley Law School, our online host, so to speak, today, and uh, also a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Richard, Andy, and John, welcome. Thank you for having first, me. First question, and on this one, I don't, I don't want, in fact, I would dissuade you from long learned, learned answers, a simple yes, a nod of the head. I'm going to quote John Yu and his co-author in a recent piece, Robert Delahunty, quote, Trump has only himself to blame. He presented challenges to the 2020 election beyond all reason. He stoked an angry mob on the day that Congress gathered to count the electoral votes, and he failed to call out law enforcement to protect the Capitol until too late. Can everyone in this conversation stipulate that that account is accurate? That is no. to say, we intend to defend the Constitution. We intend to defend Donald Trump in as much as he has rights as an American citizen, but nobody cares to defend Donald Trump's judgment. True? No one, want, no one should defend his judgment, but it's not at all clear that the mistakes he made are of constitutional import. And I think it would be very dangerous to prejudge the case before you have an impeachment to see whether or not the allegations are true. And that from Richard Epstein passes as a one word answer. <laughs> Andy and John, the answer to you from both of you is yes, correct? I, I agree with John and, and Robert's All description right. of that. Yes. All I right, agree so with myself for now. Now, now we John, go to, now really, we go to Richard's grave. <laughs> we go to Richard's grave objection here or his grave question. Two quotations. This is a longish one, but it is a very necessary one. This is the Constitution of the United States. The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office under the United States. That's quotation one. Here's quotation two. This is Richard Epstein writing recently. We must ask whether the Senate even has the power to try this impeachment once the president is out of office, as indeed he is now. As a textual matter, Richard continues, the answer is no. Andy McCarthy, why is Richard Epstein mistaken? Well, I think the Constitution textually doesn't answer the question that we're, it doesn't give a precise answer to the question that we're grappling with, which, which is, it doesn't in any place say a former official may not be subjected to 
an impeachment trial. If it had a clear statement like that, we wouldn't be uh, groping for textual references. Um, but I, I think the broader problem for me, Peter, is that um, this is not a legal problem. It's a political problem. The framers intended this to be a political issue, not a legal issue. And the fact of the matter is, whether we think it's wise, I don't think it's wise. Whether we think the charge that's been filed is constitutionally sound, as you've teed it up at the beginning, I don't think it is. Um, the fact is, the Constitution does clearly commit this to the Senate. And the courts are not going to second guess what the Senate does. And we are going to have an impeachment trial. So, you know, you can, we, we could talk all day about whether, uh, you know, the textual references or inferences to be drawn from them um, more strongly support the idea that you can or cannot or may or may not uh, have an impeachment proceeding legitimately with respect to a former official. The fact is the Senate has decided we're having one and we're having one because the courts are not going to second guess them on that. So Richard, Quibble, quibble, quibble. The Constitution, the Constitution, who cares what the Constitution says? The Senate is plowing ahead. So your, your first burden, I, I, Andy surprised me with his answer a little bit. I thought your first burden was going to be an, argu an argument from the text of the Constitution. Your first burden is to explain to us why your second burden, burden an argument from the text, matters at all. Well, the first point is, I think it's a serious mistake to treat this as though it's a political situation. If you start looking at what's going on here, this is a kind of a special form of criminal prosecution. It says, but the party convicted shall be liable for punishment and, and indictment at law. Our convictions are what's at stake. You don't commit people under political situation. And the same thing in the other area is they say conviction of a treason, bribery, or the high crimes and misdemeanor. I think it is a previous mistake to say that this thing should be done in accordance with political rules. I think what that does is it completely opens everything up. The second point is that I think we'd have much more information from the text than Andy would allow. It says when the chief justice is tried, it shall be by the, uh, rather when the president is tried, it should be by the chief justice. Well, he's no longer the president. The chief justice dropped down. Well, at this particular point, uh, why did we have him in there? Well, it's because we understand that these things are deeply partisan and we want the proceedings to be governed by somebody who's neutral to the politics. A former president creates every bit as much of a political controversy, in this case, even more. Now the, the chief justice is out. Uh, so if you read the Senate rules, it has to be Kamala Harris, who was his opponent in the last election, who sees. And what she did is she simply decided to dump the operation by saying that she was going to remain absent. The Senate rules do not allow for her to do that, nor does it allow for her to delegate this to anybody else. And so you therefore have to think of a spectacle in which one party is now going to try its former opponent uh, without any of the protections that you have. And the third point I would make is the president is not simply out from under all legal sanctions if his conduct is indeed criminal. Uh, if he cannot be impeached, he's out of office. And I think it's quite clear uh, since he could, if impeached, be subject to criminal prosecution. Even if he's resigns, he can still be subject to criminal prosecution. And what the text says quite clearly is there is no absolute immunity from trial. And I would bet you, and I think Andy would agree, there's not a prayer in hell 
uh, that they would be able to secure a conviction in an ordinary court of law if they had to make out the elements of, in, of insurrection. And so I do not think that the change in form should ever tolerate a situation in which people who hate Trump, and there's a long list of them, myself in some sense included, I do not think we ought to turn this into that kind of a circus. By the way, Andy, Andy does agree that they could not get a conviction on incitement, and I'm going to quote him to that effect in a moment or two. But first, John, on the textual question, is this trial constitutional? I don't think so. You could say this is from, uh, this arises because of a gap in the Constitution. Uh, we, I think, should all assume that the Constitution does not allow or provide for the impeachment of private citizens. For example, the Congress right now could not impeach Peter Robinson for writing a dreadful speech about pulling down the Berlin Wall back in 1989 <laughs> as a government official. Right? He's long been out of office. He's a private citizen. So, And we also should agree the Constitution allows for the impeachment of sitting officers like President Trump was until noon on January 20th. The weird thing is, what do you do with this gap in the Constitution about someone who's in office when they're impeached, but then by the time the trial is had, held, they're out of office? Can I just, are you granting Andy's point that the Constitution is unclear or ambiguous or silent? I'm not quite sure how Andy would put it, but, yeah, I, but I we would really say, don't know what the Constitution says in this strange instance. Are, are you granting Andy's point? Yeah, yeah, I think Andy's right to say the text is silent on such a power. Now, the Rule of construction, though, is that if the Constitution is silent as to a power, we don't infer it as going into going to Congress, specifically not Congress, or to the federal government as a whole. Then the second point, you know, you can look at the ratification debates, you can look at the Federalist Papers. I think people from both sides would admit no one during the founding specifically discussed this idea of trying a president who's left office. And so I think the best uh, authority you can look at are the state constitutions that preceded the U.S. Constitution. And those are interesting. The ones that were enacted right at the time of the revolution did specifically provide for the impeachment of people after they left office. Some of them only allowed which, which for Which was, if I may, I'm sorry, I just, layman here, I want to make sure I'm with you on this. Impeachment of people after they left office was the practice of parliament in Britain. And the very early constitutions, state cons, or I suppose they were colonial cons, no, post, post-revolution, pre-adoption, pre-ratification of the constitution. That's the period you're talking about. Yeah. So they were states in the American states, and the early ones did adopt impeachment of officials after they left office. Have I got that right? Yes, they specifically okay. said so. And then some of the constitutions after that initial burst of the revolution uh, New York and Massachusetts are the most important ones because they were the models for our federal constitution. Those two constitutions dropped that out. And so my argument is, well, the founders knew how to say we want to try past officials because they would write it in into the state constitutions and they knew how to leave it out. So if you compare our federal constitution to those ones that were written around the same time by the same people, our constitution is silent, which to me implies that they didn't want to include the power. Yes. Okay. So, the, so the the first rule of construction is that the founders were highly intelligent, and wrote what they wanted, wrote what they intended. So, so does okay. John and Richard, you argue that the text takes precedence here. There are a couple of formidable figures just in the last couple of days, and I know we've all read these because we've all exchanged emails about them. Just in the couple of days, 
there are some formidable figures who agree with you that the text of the Constitution comes first, but they reach Andy's conclusion about this trial, not yours. Here's one. Mike McConnell of Stanford. I call him Mike because he's a friend, as he is to all three of you as well. And Kenneth Gormley of Duquesne. Quote, Trump's impeachment by the House of Representatives seven days before he left office was unquestionably valid. I think all three of you stipulate that. The only question is whether now that he's back in private life, he may be tried in the Senate. The Constitution provides a clear answer, giving the Senate, quoting the Constitution now, sole power to try all impeachments, close quote. The key word is all. The Senate's authority explicitly extends to every constitutionally proper impeachment, close quote. Simple syllogism. Wrong. Was Trump's impeachment valid? No. Yes. Does the Constitution give the Senate the right to try all impeachments? Yes. Therefore, the Senate has the right to try Donald Trump. What could be wrong with that? Well, everything, I think. Let's just start from the <laughs> beginning. Uh, the first part is, if you look at the House of Representatives, it has the sole power to bring any impeachment. Nobody would argue that since it has a monopoly over that, that it could decide to impeach somebody after he's left office. Uh, that would be, I think, incorrect. So I think the way you read the sentence is without the accent on the word all and treat it more evenly distributed like it's good poetry rather than bad interpretation. And what happens is the sole power to trial impeachments only means that the Senate has exclusive authority over these particular cases. It does not allow it to do whatever else it turns out it wants. And indeed under their article, of you, the House could impeach somebody who's never been in office or out of office because it has the sole power uh, to do so. And so if you want to read the two things together, the basic logic of this is we have to make sure that we can get bad apples out of office. We have special procedures for the president. When the bad apples are gone, we don't worry about anything else. And notice when it talks about removal and disqualification, it says judgments in cases of impeachment. So I disagree with Andy on another point. I think if this case is without jurisdiction, as I believe it is, and then as with any other judgment, it could be collaterally taxed somewhere else as being void and of no effect. Because if this is a political trial, he's right. But if it's a legal proceeding uh, designed to be in substitute for a criminal prosecution, then I think he's wrong. But it's, Andy, but, but it's, not, but it's not a criminal proceeding. I mean, first of all, is. the Constitution explicitly says that uh, beyond impeachment, the, the person who is convicted of impeachment can be prosecuted uh, in a court of law, by, indicted, et cetera. So the proceeding we're talking about has no jeopardy protection, which if it were a criminal proceeding, it would. It would preclude a subsequent prosecution. But so no, I, 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 just, I, I just simply disagree that it's a, that it's a quasi trial I, or quasi criminal trial. I just don't think that's the case. I think it's what wrong. we're talking about is there's a political power that's being stripped by the political body to which the framers get basically gave this uh, judgment to. Uh, I, I, I disagree with you on double jeopardy. Um, okay. What happens is double jeopardy is a provision which says when it says you should not be twice in jeopardy of life and limb. If you have a state prosecution, it doesn't preclude a federal prosecution. And so in this particular case, I would argue that this is a unique, sui generis type of procedure. And in fact, since they authorize this, it would be extremely dangerous to read a double jeopardy provision, which is put in afterwards to prevent this thing from taking effect. 
And so the word conviction stands, it is a criminal trial, but it is not double jeopardy. And why is that? Because they knew that they were limited only to removal from office and disqualification. And if somebody should be subject to fines or to jail time, they wanted to make sure that it works. And I would not read the Fifth Amendment back into this. I would simply read this as a harmonious structural whole. Andy, I'll come back to you in a moment. First, if I may, John, here, another little bit of a surprise to me here in this conversation. Andy and Richard are bringing really two different modes of thought to the question of constitutionality. Andy's saying, look, and if I may, because I know everybody here, I've known you all for years, this also fits with Andy's background and to some sense his temperament. Andy's saying, come on, you're slicing this much too fine. The trial's taking place. It's a political act. The Senate's going to do it. And Richard is saying, excuse me, the Senate is going to do so derived from the text of the Constitution of the United States, a sacred document to which we owe our highest duties, including our highest intellectual duties. What, for a layman like me, I feel whipsawed, they both make points. What's the right way? What's the correct mode of thinking about this problem? Actually, I think the two are harmonious. I'm not trying to help you, but... You, you never do, John. Don't worry. I never suspect that. <laughs> I think that two things make sense because, uh, and Andy has this great book about impeachment he wrote uh, about 10 years ago, I think. Oh, it's been that long. And he makes an argument, which I think the Supreme Court also follows, which is uh, yeah, the Constitution sets out impeachment and it sets out certain procedures and standards for impeachment. But then within that, it's up to politics. Uh, there's no uh, review by the courts, no imposition of any legal standards. So there was this judge, Judge Walter Nixon, who took a case to the Supreme Court. He was impeached back in 1993. Uh, and he, you know, he, fought, uh, he lost under my rule of Nixon, which is anytime a Nixon appears in court, they lose <laughs> no matter who they are. So Judge Nixon, you know, he basically, he was tried by a committee of the Senate. The full Senate really didn't try him at all. So he said, taking the language Richard just quoted, he said, mm. it says the Senate tries the impeachment. So I want a full trial in front of the Senate. And the Supreme Court said, yes, because the Constitution gives a trial to the Senate, nobody else can try Judge Nixon. In this case, no one else can try Donald Trump. Only the Senate can. But then here's the interesting, the Supreme Court said, but the way the Senate chooses to try, the procedures it uses, how much time it gives, all the things that uh, we all think apply to criminal trials, the court said, we are not going to second guess the Senate. It is only up to the Senate. And they called it, the court said, that's a political question. So Andy's right when he says, this is all up to politics. All these questions about Trump, the trial, all that is going to be settled by the Senate. No court can review it. But Richard is right in that the whole framework is set out by constitutional law. And so I would make the small argument, which is, yeah, once the trial starts tomorrow, the courts are not going to review it. But I still think Trump could say the whole thing is unconstitutional would be Richard's point. You can't try a private citizen. That's not a political question. It would be the same as if you or I or any of us were tried by the Senate right now as private citizens. We should be able to go to the courts and say, you know, the whole the okay. Senate just doesn't have jurisdiction or power over us. Now, can, I, can, I, can I, a legal question. I want to come to Andy in a moment on what should have happened because he's very eloquent on how the house got things wrong. I'll, just a moment, Richard, let me set up one more, but I want to try two more questions, two more questions about the constitutionality of the trial. One from the noted 
legal scholar and practitioner, Chuck Cooper, and the other from the noted legal scholar and practitioner, me. So we'll go with Chuck Cooper first. Richard, this is for you. This is in today's Wall Street Journal. Yes. Chuck Cooper uh, argued many times before the Supreme Court, has his own firm in Washington, former assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel. The Constitution, he argues, quote, authorizes the Senate to impose an optional punishment on conviction. Now he's quoting the Constitution disqualification to hold any office under the United States. Now back to Cooper himself, that punishment can only be imposed on former officers, close quote. Hence, the text of the Constitution itself does indeed countenance the trial of former office holders. I think he's wrong. But let me first answer one question to answer John. I think he misstated Go ahead. one point. You may have the ability to internally organize, but the final vote must be by the entire Senate. Uh, that was also required in Nixon, and if it had not been, that trial would have been null and void. Uh, so the principle of delegation to a subcommittee inside a body like that could not be done. Okay, and on the other point, I think that Chuck is again wrong. I mean, if you look at this, what it says is he said that this was a kind of a uh, minimum mandatory sentence, but nothing above it. What it doesn't say, it doesn't say that at all. But it says there he shall be removed, which is a direct command. There is a serious glitch in the Constitution, because now suppose what you do is you try the president for something less than a high crime and misdemeanor, right? He is not required to be removed from office. But if you look at the text, uh, then only uh, Article 2, uh, Article 1 governs. And it appears as though he could be removed from office for a lesser offense, which seems to be very, very crazy. And so what the, the practical conjunction of this has always been, if it's going to be the president, you've got to be in for all, you've got to be in for nothing. And the only provision that ever governs is Section 4. And I think, in effect, that it's really odd to do it the way in which he says, because if you decided to censure the president, say, for jaywalking, a criminal offense in some location, maybe not a high crime of not a high crime administration, you can still try him for impeachment and then you could remove him from office. And so the historical practice is uh, the only thing you could do is try him for a high price crime and misdemeanor. And the only thing you do is to force him out of office. But notice this is not a textual argument. It's an argument that arises because the text itself doesn't coordinate effectively the two provisions that are an issue. Okay, last, last line of inquiry on the constitutional question, if I may. And I presented this as my little argument. That's ridiculous, of course. It's just an argument I myself find especially compelling. And this is the argument, not from the text of the Constitution itself as a procedural matter, but from the text of the Constitution as it applies to Donald Trump's rights as an American citizen. And Andy, I'm, I'm especially interested in your view on this because the, the argument in its most compelling form that I found was put in the Wall Street Journal by a former prosecutor, Jeffrey Shapiro. The president's critics, so he argues that the, the one article of impeachment from the House is titled Incitement to Insurrection. And Shapiro says, as all three of you, I believe, have already granted, no court is going to convict Donald Trump on incitement. You can explain why in a moment, but all three of you believe that. Shapiro says the same thing. If, they can't, if a court won't convict on incitement, then Shapiro says, the president's critics want him charged for inflaming the emotions of angry Americans. He did that. Inflaming emotions does not satisfy the elements of any criminal offense. And therefore, his speech is protected by the Constitution that members of Congress are sworn 
to support and defend, close quote. Non-criminal speech is defended by, is, is covered by the First Amendment and the members of the Senate who will sit in trial on Donald Trump beginning tomorrow morning are sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States, including the First Amendment. Andy, that's a prosecutor's argument. What do you make of that one? Well, uh, it's actually one that I had to grapple with uh, back in terrorism cases back in the uh, in the mid '90s, and the I think the interesting way that this works itself out is that if you're talking about the use of speech as evidence of another crime, in other words, you're not criminalizing the utterance of the words itself, but to, to be more concrete about it, the, cell, the fellows are sitting in the back of the uh, Ravenite social club and the Don turns to the button and he says, whack that guy. Um, when they eventually have the trial for conspiracy to murder, when the prosecutor proves up the statement, whack that guy, Bruce Cutler doesn't get to come in and say, not for nothing, but like First Amendment, my rights here, right? Um, what he ends up having to, what ends up happening is the speech is not, the words whack that guy are not a criminal offense. They are evidence of the charge of conspiracy to murder. So I think that if Trump had been, uh, if, if Trump had said things that were an actual incitement, then he would be in, an, in the exemption of fighting words that could cause, uh, could trigger violence uh, imminently, criminally, et cetera. That would be criminal that, speech, correct? That yes. would be criminal speech and it wouldn't be right. protected under the First Amendment. He hasn't committed incitement. He hasn't come close to committing incitement. Um, his, his words, even in their worst interpretation, are not would not be sufficient to prove solicitation to a crime of violence under federal law. So therefore, I think there is force to this First Amendment argument. However, what I would have charged Trump with in this aspect. Hold on, hold on. I'm giving you, okay. I, there's a whole right. segment reserved for what you, what the House should have charged him with. All right, but then but, I should just say, Peter, without, without going there then, I do think his speech would have been admissible if they had charged misconduct that was actually impeachable misconduct. Okay, so Richard, on this point that you, the article charges him with incitement to insurrection, it's an overreach. The speech he engaged in is protected by the First Amendment. It's worse than that. One of the things that happens is there's a duty of candor in these cases. You cannot take a single sentence out of context and ignore the sentences that come before and after. And so they says, we'll fight for our rights. But there are a couple of things that he mentioned. One is he says, I want you to make a peaceful protest in front of the government. And second, I don't want you to overthrow the government. I want you to ask the Senate to postpone making a final decision on this until they examine the facts of the underlying case. To give you an example of what is a criminal act, which I think it's Nancy Pelosi, announcing that she will punish Mr. Trump with impeachment unless Michael Pence decides under the 25th Amendment to say that he's unable to hold office. That's a direct form of coercion that's being put in this place, asking a man to make a statement which is false. 
we may not like Trump, but there was nothing whatsoever in this conduct of public affairs, notwithstanding his crazy situations in Georgia and anywhere else, which suggests that's an illustration of incitement or punishment of one sort. Andy, am I wrong about that as a technical criminal matter? Not that the House is going to basically do this to the chief, but I think in effect the uh, serious kind of charge that has to be raised, direct contrast with what happened with the president outside. Yeah, she did try to extort him. Yeah, well, that's a crime. The, well, yes, it is. It's a crime. Let's not be nice about it. In some, well, She's it's a, a member of Congress. It was a legislative it's, it's, act. I don't know. No, it's not. It does not oh, come, come on. Okay, boy, fellas, fellas. I, this is a strange. John, I have no I had no intention of casting you as the mediator, the 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 the, the peacekeeper here. But go ahead. Over to you. Make peace if you can. People always on this First Amendment question. <laughs> People What's always that? accuse me of being the peacekeeper and the moderate in the room. This is so uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> So I, I, again, I think it actually goes back to the question you asked earlier, Peter, about how do you um, reconcile uh, Richard's more, you know, law approach to understanding impeachment to Andy's uh, polit- more political approach is uh, the Constitution doesn't require that President Trump be charged with a crime for impeachment. Right? It says high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, of course, acknowledging that we're only applying the standard in Article Two. Uh, you know, one point that I think you may agree is if ex-presidents can be charged and it's not limited by Article 2, why is it limited to high crimes and misdemeanors? But suppose it is. Suppose it is limited to high crimes. Uh, I think we all agree at the time of the framing, this was not limited to crimes. Uh, the Federalist Papers talk about this as being a political offense uh, against the body politic, as well as perhaps some kinds of crimes. If that's true, uh, the House, I think I agree with Andy and Richard, I think they mischarged Trump. You know, uh, Andy's made a good case there. He should have been charged with dereliction of duty, maybe, which is almost like a court. Let Andy make that case in a moment. But the House could say, and this is what they're going to start arguing tomorrow, is when we said incitement, we didn't mean incitement the way it's charged by federal prosecutors. We mean incitement to insurrection in some broad way. And this is more the political understanding. We're going to give it a political meaning, and we're going to try to convict Trump of all the things basically that we forgot to charge him with, but we're going to stuff it into this incitement to insurrection charge. And I think this goes to the bigger problem is even though the trial uh, is going to be conducted starting tomorrow and not reviewed by the courts, it's not strictly governed by the due process requirement that we have in our courts. I do think this is another example of the unfairness of the trial is to charge a president with one thing and then try him for something completely different. Yeah. If that happened in any yeah. courtroom in America, as Andy would say, that case would, you know, the prosecutors would probably be sanctioned for something like that. Andy, okay, so you've argued, you've argued at length and eloquently that the House just got it wrong, that the, that the indictment, that the, the article of impeachment is simply mistaken. I'm quoting you now, Trump committed two very clear impeachable offenses. Name those two, and then I want to see what Richard and, and John make of that. John's the easier juror at the moment, but Richard, I, you're going to have to sway Richard here. Yeah, yeah. The Star t- Chamber guy in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> well, the caveat here is I, I do agree with Richard that you would have to hear the case, and, and we're making assumptions about how it would come out. But my understanding of the evidence, at least as, as the case is going to be presented, we'll see what they're able to show, is that... Um, for the hours during which the siege was underway, the commander in chief basically sat on his hands while the seat of government was being attacked. And I think that's an obvious dereliction of duty, and he could be impeached for that. 
I also think the January 6th proceeding is required by the Constitution for the vice president and the Congress to preside over the counting of the state's votes. Right. The states are sovereign over their own votes. Once they certify them, the federal government does not have any check on the state's votes. All the people who reported that January 6th is the day the federal government certifies the winner of the election, that's wrong. The states certify the election. The feds count the votes. So what Trump was asking the vice president and the lawmakers to do was unconstitutional. Their role was not to second guess the states or to question their certification, which under federal law was final as long as it was done before the safe harbor day or by the safe harbor day. Um, so I think what he was asking them to do was unconstitutional and was a violation of his duty to uphold the constitution and to see that the laws are faithfully executed. But I would not impeach on that as a one-off. I think the unforgivable, indefensible thing, and as a prosecutor, what you would wanna build the case around is his failure to act while the Capitol was under siege and while Capitol police officers, including Officer Sicknick, who was murdered, uh, were under terrible duress. What would you call that? Dereliction? Criminal negligence? What, what, what would you call it? I would it? call it dereliction of duty. And I, I think uh, if I'm remembering right, John and Richard will correct me on this, but I believe it's Hamilton uh, in the Federalist Papers who makes the point that impeachment um, sounds more almost in military justice than it does in penal justice, because the concept is that you are violating a public trust, which is why Hamilton makes the point that it's a political offense, not necessarily a, a criminal offense that you could indict in a civilian court. John, uh, we'll go to John first. I, I, I don't want John to be the tiebreaker every single time. <laughs> or John, incitement to insurrection, wrong article of impeachment. But if the House had got the right article of impeachment, it would have been dereliction of duty. It would have been compelling and powerful. The whole matter would have been constitutional and the Senate should have and would have convicted. John? I read Andy as making uh, the grounds for a second charge, which is a failure to enforce the laws. So, so if you say that if the federal papers are, if we're gonna consult them, they talk about the president having two fundamental duties. One is to enforce the laws in which the constitution is the highest and then to protect the country. And you could say, uh, in the events leading up to the counting the electoral votes. I, I, I don't agree with Andy that um, the president has to accept the electoral votes no matter what happens. Like if you had a Florida 2000 situation or the 1876 election where you actually have conflicting electoral counts or you have disorder in the states, I think there is some space for the president or actually particularly the vice president or in the Congress to use some judgment. But that wasn't present here. Whatever the standard is, all of the states certified their votes the electoral count should have gone on as it eventually did without really much controversy or hitch to it uh, because there wasn't really uh, the factual dispute of those. So by constantly challenging them, you could make the claim that the president had not taken care that the laws were faithfully executed, which is his primary constitutional duty. And then I agree. I do agree with the second one about dereliction. It's not really, there's no federal crime of dereliction that a 
private citizen could be charged with. It is more of a political crime where someone has not fulfilled their obligations to the Constitution. And so you could say by not calling out law enforcement and military fast enough, while the attack on the Capitol is going on, the president violated that second constitutional duty. Richard, there was a compelling and constitutional impeachment and trial to be had here, but the House screwed it up. Well, I mean, I think this case is much stronger than the incitement case, which should never have been brought. Um, But let me first say, uh, people talk about this as being a political act rather than a criminal act. I think that's incorrect. The correct way to say it, it has to be both. And so if you start looking at all the crimes that are listed, conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanor, or what they're really saying is you could not engage in acts of extortion, for example. Uh, but I think, in fact, that it would not be an impeachable offensive in a fit of rage. What you did is you committed rape or murder against some private individual. If it was unrelated to this, you could still impeach him because it would be under the general power, but it would not be covered by the second section. As far as what the president does in, in making a ridiculous argument that uh, you should not have to count the votes. He's just wrong on that. The 12th Amendment says the vice president and the president of the Senate in the presence of everybody else has to open the ballot. It doesn't even say that this man counts them. In fact, nobody is specified as the counter of the balance. It's clearly a function done by a clerk. It would be regarded as a ministerial act, which means that there's no discretion, which means that Trump is wrong. But every time a president urges an unconstitutional condition, Um, that becomes an impeachable offense, then the world is crazy. And I don't think that this is crazy. Um, I think it would be a criminal offense if he tried to some extent, which he could not do, uh, to literally go in there and take over the proceedings. But I think the talk in this case would not be there. Dereliction of duty is, I think, a harder case, and it's closer to the line, uh, because uh, Trump did order people to dope peacefully, and Trump was not directly in charge of the uh, Capitol Police when this went on. And so before you could make this a dereliction of duty question, uh, the issue is, did you find something that took place on the ground level by other people, uh, which itself was a serious breach of their duty? And I think that people really did believe that those people who were in charge of the preparations screwed everything up in a rather major way. And so given that, the difficulty in this particular case is, do you want to charge the president with dereliction of duty? when they're minor officials who managed to get everything wrong in the preparation and the execution of this, when Trump was away in the middle of a political rally at some other point. And by the time it turned out that, you know, you really needed reinforcements, they were already called out. So I could argue that this was rather than dereliction of duty, a mistaken judgment, or I think the more powerful argument on all of these counts is in the chain of causation that people who are closer to and more immediately responsible for went on who have to bear the pluses and minuses. And that would be, I think, a defense, at least in part against Trump. Tricky case, because there's always the argument of attempt of one kind or another. But on balance, I think I would vote to reject Andy's charge, giving him full credit for saying it's much more ingenious than the charge that was actually brought. Andy, it's just amazing. You was willing to work with you, but Richard Richard Epstein not an inch so far. Andy, I get nothing. Be, I get nothing. Uh, I nothing. Nothing. You get a lot of respect, all. Andy. I, this is the stone-faced <laughs> juror. I'm telling you. Listen, before, before I get, we, hey, Peter, I gave us I gave a summation one time where for two hours a juror sat there looking at me like this. Really? <laughs> so I've had Richard on my jury before. <laughs> Nothing worse. Richard, I can't Richard's, imagine. From, Richard's from Chicago as a Chicago juror. He's just waiting for his bribe. 
<laughs> Another high crime and misdemeanor, right? Okay. okay. Hey, Andy, listen, one thing, small-ish point, but I'll return to it in a moment if there's time. You write the Democrats intentionally. So if the question is, if they got the article of impeachment wrong, why did they choose that incorrect article of impeachment? Andy McCarthy, quote, the Democrats intentionally highlighted insurrection because they're laying the groundwork for an invocation of the 14th Amendment's Section 3 Disqualification Clause. Democrats would like to use Section 3 to disqualify other Republicans besides Trump, close quote. Can you just explain that? Sure. I, you know, I think that this was a political gambit from the beginning. Everybody knows Trump is not going to be uh, convicted here. Um, so what this mainly was, I, I think, is two things, Peter. One is it's a it's a political narrative and you're seeing this threaded through a lot of what we're seeing in the way of, of policy in the new administration. But this is a big part of the exercise where they want to say that the big problem in the country now is domestic terrorism. And it's not all domestic terrorism. It's one very specific kind of domestic terrorism, white nationalism or white supremacy and neo-Nazism. And they want to connect that to the attack on the Capitol and connect it to Trump. And by virtue of that, um, taint Trump supporters and in some ways conservatives and Republicans all with this tar with the tar them with this brush. So I think that's one big part of it. And I think the other big part of it is, and there's a lot of uh, progressive scholarship for this proposition. Um, the 14th Amendment has a provision in it um, for exactly the purposes that we're talking about. Disqualification from office for people who are involved or implicated in insurrection. And I think they wanted insurrection, even though it should be a very controversial word. Let's not forget that for six months, we've had insurrectionist violence in major cities across, across this country, the country, and they yeah. took no notice of it. But they want this to be insurrection uh, because there uh, will be moves at some point to go into court and say that those Republicans who supported Trump's quest to get the election overturned were involved in instigating, in inciting the insurrection that happened. And that will be the basis for trying to get those Republicans uh, disqualified from holding office. The other okay, so word there is rebellion in that section. Mm. And, and this is just downright evil, kind of a, an overcharge. There is a serious- Hold on, Richard, just wait, wait a minute. You want to go beyond, everybody grants that this is partisan. This makes you so angry or so concerned- it's intellectually as, as dishonest. All right. Evil, evil is the word you want to use. Yeah, that's a good word. All right. Okay, listen, so, so let's stick with the article of impeachment itself for a moment. Incitement to insurrection. Andy's just explained why the article includes the word insurrection. It only makes about two or three specific charges against the president, former, now former president. I'll, I don't want to get hung up in the text here. The, Text of the Constitution is worth getting hung up in. It's always <laughs> fascinating when I hear the people like you talk about it. This text is not worth getting hung up in, so I, but I still have to read bits of it to you. 
Donald J. Trump engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors. He repeatedly issued false statements asserting that the election results were a product of widespread fraud and addressing the crowd on the ellipse on January 6th. He reiterated false claims and now quotes the former president. We won this election and we won it by a landslide, close quote. Trump's lawyers have now submitted a formal answer to the article of impeachment. Again, I quote from this quickly. The former president had the right to express his belief the election results were suspect, since with very few exceptions, under the guise of COVID-19 pandemic safeguards, states' election laws and procedures were changed by local politicians or judges without the necessary approvals from state legislatures, close quote. And those kinds of changes, there were changes all in election procedures all across the country. That's a matter of record. That did happen before the election. So Trump, in his usual crude, ham-fisted way, got his specific allegation wrong, but he was onto something. The election was riven with irregularities. There were changes in election procedures, almost all of which disadvantaged the Republican candidate. He's got something. And if he's got something, that's not impeachable. I would put it the following way. Uh, The courts decided these things. I think in many cases it decided them wrong. In some of these cases, it actually- You're talking about the post-election challenges of which there were about five dozen. In Pennsylvania, it took place before right. the election. Okay, so you're talking about the whole spectrum the whole of smear. All right. This is race judicated, and that means you can't relitigate it. But it doesn't mean that you can't challenge it afterwards on the ground that it was flawed. I mean, time after time, somebody says, well, race judicator in Bread Scott means you can't challenge slavery. No. Uh, it turns out that Trump is entitled to raise those arguments and to say that it's unsound on this side of the other ground. Um, it turns out one of the great tragedies is. All of the reporting on this simply says that the allegations are baseless. What we really need is an investigation in which the people who want to get after him give their roundhouse punches. And the answer has to be specific. This is wrong because, as opposed to general, this is just worthless. And what has been scandalous on the other side is a blanket denial is given as a substitute for an answer of specific allegations of misconduct, which are fair play when it comes to the political proceeding even though they could not be used to upset the election. Okay, so John and Andy, if Donald Trump had said that, just what Richard said, and further said, I leave office on January 21st, and afterwards I intend to dedicate myself to election reform, to finding out what happened and to reforming the system. No problem, right? Couldn't lay a finger on him, no matter what any mobs did. That certainly wouldn't have been impeachable. Right right or not? I think one way to to help think about this, about what's impeachable or not, and what's speech or not, is to maybe distinguish between Trump as a candidate and Trump as a president. Trump is a candidate running for re-election. He can say whatever he wants. He's the First Amendment right, campaigning for office. Uh, I don't think he can be impeached for that. What he can be impeached for is the actions he takes as president. And all the things you've just described, Peter, are just the president rendering his opinion about things. What matters is, you know, what Andy said earlier, did Trump actually try to interfere with the recount in Georgia? Did he actually try to pressure Vice President Pence to, you know, miscount the votes or to halt the votes or to reject votes? That's the exercise of public power. He can be impeached for that. But again, this is the problem. The House 
impeaches him for statements. They include these statements in the articles of impeachment. Right. He has a, he's a First Amendment free speech right to say those things. Okay, so let's let's go on quickly. Again, as quickly as I can. It's The dispute concerns words, and I have to repeat them or else this conversation won't be intelligible. The article of impeachment charges this, as I just read to you, with it's impeachable in the view of the article that he claimed that the election was irregular, fraudulent, and so forth. Here are the other couple of specific charges that um, he used the phrase if to the crowd on the ellipse on January 6th, if you don't fight like hell, President Trump willfully made statements that in context encouraged and foreseeably resulted in lawless action of the Capitol, such as, quote, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore, close quote, Trump's lawyers. It is denied that the phrase, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore, had anything to do with the action of the Capitol, as it was clearly about the need to fight for election security in general. I'm just going to act as the finder of fact here quickly, because I looked at the speech, and Trump's lawyers are right. In context, he clearly was not calling for violence, and the article of impeachment willfully misconstrues what it, it violates the duty of candor. The article of impeachment also accuses him of leaning on the Georgia Secretary of State, I'm reading the article of impeachment, to find, they use the word find, which emerged from the transcript of, phone, of Trump's phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State, to find enough votes to overturn the Georgia presidential election results and threaten Secretary Raffensperger if he failed to do so, close quote. With what? George, Georgetown Law Professor Jonathan Turley, who's read the transcript. The call Trump participated in was a settlement discussion over election challenges with a variety of lawyers present. He was discussing what he viewed as uncounted votes that far exceeded the margin of roughly 12,000 and noting as part of the request for access to data that they did not need to find much to overturn the result, close quote. As far as I can tell, layman here, Lord knows I have my own political leanings, but as far as I can tell, both of those specific allegations, and this article is brief. They only quote him a few times. And One every word. time they quote him, they yank it out of context and willfully misconstrue. They are attempting to, per to perpetrate on the Senate of the United States a kind of fraud. Is that right? It's, it's a criminal offense to give an indictment which you know to be false. Right, Andy? John? Yes. Yeah. Come well, on, I want somebody else to get as stirred as Richard's calling no, but, evil, and I'm can, actually can, pretty can worked I, up about it myself. I don't, I don't want to cut John off, but, but see, this is why I'm not, I'm happy to live in a political universe. If you're going to have charges like this, and you're going to have procedures which they have, which from soup to nuts violate the norms of due process in a trial, and you're going to have a, a proceeding which itself for all the reasons that John and Richard have, have explained, is one about which reasonable minds on both sides of the constitutional debate differ about whether it's even legitimate, he's never going to be convicted. He should and, never be tried. Right, well, back when we had more common sense, the, the, the knowledge that the president would not be convicted would be enough to stop the House from impeaching him in the first place. So I don't think the problem is impeachment. I think it's the political culture. No, I think it's allowing this. Let me give you a couple of things. Right. They use the word lean on as an impeachable offense, right? What did Nancy Pelosi do to Michael Pence? 
She didn't only lean on him, she threatened the impeachment of the officer if he did not go along. Now you want to talk about incite to riot. Chuck Schumer gets on the steps of the Supreme Court and basically starts to threaten people. He's there, people are there, and I believe that there was actually efforts to kind of storm the gates at that point. Um, is under this standard, I think it's a stronger case of basically incitement to riot of some form or another, maybe insurrection if you want to be fancy about it, against Schumer than anybody else. The double standard in these cases, going after Trump for his silly speech and ignoring every act of violence and bloodshed against federal buildings in places like Portland and Seattle is just mind boggling. And I mean, this is a kind of disgusting degeneration. And I just don't think that the political process should do this. I think in effect that the Senate should not hear this case. I've given all the arguments about it. And if the only reason we're going to bend these proceedings is to allow this terrible case to go forward, it's a sad day in American constitutional history. I'm going to just one little uh, uh, point here. Uh, one is I, I, I agree with Andy that it's political, but that doesn't mean partisan politics should decide. When I, I meant political, I think what Andy means political is that uh, it just means it's not judicial. Political decision makers are going to decide how to hold the trial, what to indict for. It's not subject to review by the courts. But all the members of the House and the Senate take an oath to obey the Constitution too. They should be trying to do their best to give meaning to the constitutional text. And so the real one major defect here, and why I think the trial is unfair, is that the House did not really conduct any kind of investigation before impeaching Trump. And so if you think about it, it's kind of like a wait, the less that the House did, the more that the Senate has to do in a trial. The fact that the House, for example, doesn't appear, looked at tapes to time when Trump spoke, were people already trying to break into the Capitol, right? That would be important to see whether there's something going. The House didn't really do any of that. And so actually that means the Senate- They made no to effort war. to find facts. There was yeah, not a single Senate, hearing. Yeah, they had the timeline right. Yeah. They got so then the Senate has to do that in the trial if we really want to have faith in any kind of conviction of impeachment. And so uh, the Senate, in a way, has to make up for the House's defects in this impeachment. But unfortunately, from what you read in the papers, they want to rush everything through, right? They want to have the proceedings over in about uh, five to seven days. John Yu, John John writing just a few days ago, Trump's lawyers could halt the impeachment trial in its tracks by filing a writ of habeas corpus directly with the Supreme Court, close quote. Should they do just that? But by the way, yeah. take a moment to explain what a writ of habeas corpus would be. So uh, I know Richard's really going to get in on this because the Latin words are being used. So Roman law must be involved. <laughs> but actually, this is not Roman law. This is just it Latin. It certainly is. <laughs> but the writ of habeas corpus originally was you, me, we all have the right to file a writ of habeas corpus when we're being tried by a court that does not have jurisdiction over us. And by jurisdiction, I mean, it has no power. That's what I said. That's the original root of the writ. So Trump could, I think under the rules, go to the Supreme Court directly and say, the Senate is a court for impeachment. It has no power over me because I'm an ex-official now. And then he could go to the Senate and say, who are you to hold the trial while the Supreme Court's considering whether any of this is legal? Should the Supreme Court hear should this they should they consider that? Let me this let me say let me let me give you a hypothetical. Suppose a Republican Congress comes in someday and they say someday. that George Soros guy, he's up to no good. He's been funding all these extremist progressive groups. We're going to impeach George Soros, even though he's never held public office. Under the same argument that a Chuck Cooper is making, right? Impeachment, why is it not why doesn't it extend to public private people too? 
I would think George Soros would have a right to seek a writ and say, I can't be tried by the Senate. The Constitution doesn't say you can try private efficient, private. That's the point that I made at the beginning when I said this was beyond the jurisdiction, but there's a second part to it. I'm not sure that you can get habeas corpus when a proceeding is not yet completed. There are all sorts of doctrines about delay and deferment and so forth. It's a complicated writ because otherwise uh, what would happen is in virtually every case, you could hold up a state proceeding by going into federal court and making some kind of an allegation. But the other point is true. Suppose they convict him. Suppose they decide he's not able to hold office. At that point, he then applies for job. They say you're not there. And he says this decision is of no effect because there's no jurisdiction. And at that point, you don't have to worry about habeas corpus. He's got standing to say that this was an illegal proceeding, which indeed it is. Mm. Hey, last questions now. This is for Andy. The House rushed the article of impeachment to a vote without holding a single hearing violated the duty of candor. I'm using Richard's fancy language, but I would say is they willfully misconstrued the evidence in the article of impeachment. And on your own, your own account, Andy, they charged Donald Trump with insurrection so they could charge others with insurrection as well. They're dragging the 14th Amendment, which was enacted to heal the country after the Civil War, they're dragging the 14th Amendment into political uses for their own convenience at the present time. The whole effort is not just partisan, but craven, one could argue, and I'd be very tempted to do so myself, and Richard already has. What do you advise? Mitt Romney, the, what, there are five senators who seem, five Republicans who have already voted in a way that indicates they believe that they're likely to convict Donald Trump, Mitt Romney, Mikulski of Alaska. Um, they, let's set them aside. They've already declared, and you're the man who understands practical political realities. Once you've put your stake in the ground, you're going to leave it there. That leaves 45 other Republicans, including good, I would argue, remarkable, wise people who try to uphold the Constitution, who try to serve their constituents, who try to hold the country together, including, for example, Rob Portman of Ohio, John Hoven of North Dakota. You don't know their names because they're not on cable news screaming every night. They're in the Senate trying to hold the place together. What do you advise them to do? Should they insist on giving up, standing up and giving speeches and denouncing this entire proceeding? What is your advice to the centrist Republicans on whom this whole trial will turn? Well, I think there's two honorable positions here, and I've wrestled with this uh, a lot because I th actually think the violations of due process are even more extensive than you've described. Just in the last few days, they've tried to basically amend the indictment or amend the uh, articles of impeachment through a legal memorandum, which you would never be able to do uh, in, a, in a trial. They the, figured out uh, that McCarthy was right. They did, they, they did bring the wrong charge, so to speak. Right. Well, but, and the, the main, uh, the main impeachment prosecutor or, uh, manager, uh, Raskin, uh, is trying to demand that Trump That's testify, right. which is, I mean, I must say I had several very long trials. We could have wrapped it up a lot quicker if I could have just brought the defendant in. we could have, you know, tied that up in a day. So, the, these are gross violations of the norms of, of due process. It turns the proceeding into a kangaroo court. 
And if, if you get to a certain point where even if you believe in good faith that an impeachable offense got committed, if the process is so lacking in integrity, um, I think you have to say, I vote to acquit. My problem here is it seems to me that there was a clear impeachable offense. Now, I'd want to hear the evidence. I want to hear minute by minute what was Trump doing while for three, four hours the they were asking the Defense Department to send reinforcement. You want an elementary finding of fact. Right. I want to I want to know what he was doing. And I would have a hard time if they had charged this right, not convicting him of dereliction of duty under these circumstances where people died, including a Capitol Police officer who was murdered. Um, on the other hand, it's got to be a proceeding with integrity. And if, it can't, if you can't hold your head up high about that, that at least had a modicum of due process that we can say we can have confidence in the result and the way you arrived at the result, it would be very, very difficult to convict anyone, even if you were absolutely convinced that the guy was guilty. Can I ask, if, if we could put you, if we could give, arrange for you to have 15 minutes alone with Mitt Romney. I mentioned Mitt Romney because he's a man of conscience and he's already voted in such a way as to lead everybody to suppose that he intends to convict Donald Trump. And indeed, in the last impeachment and trial, he was the only Republican who did vote on one article to convict Donald Trump. All right. So the question would be this, Senator, we understand how offensive you find Donald Trump's actions on January 6th, how offensive you find his many statements about the election leading up to the events of January 6th. Senator, I grant that. I understand that. I'm with you on it. And McCarthy is with him on it. But Senator, the precedent that voting to convict Donald Trump on this procedure, on this article of impeachment, the damage that would do to the Constitution of the United States and to all those generations who must live under it yet to come outweighs the offenses that Donald Trump may have committed. Is that what you would say or not? How would you balance those well, two? Who are you asking? It's, 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 not what I, it's not what I would say. I would say we'd have to see how the whole thing comes out. I think there was an impeachable offense here. I would not tell somebody uh, not to vote to convict just because the charge was written incorrectly. And that's because I don't think this is a judicial court. I think it's a okay. political court, but it still has a responsibility to, to come up to an acceptable level of integrity. And we'll have to see whether it gets there or not. Okay. Richard and John, you've both argued in detail that the trial is unconstitutional. I should note, by the way, that we didn't get a chance to let John present his historical research in any great detail, but you have written an article in the last couple of weeks that goes through in detail what the state constitutions of the time said about impeachment and so forth. Fascinating piece. It's unconstitutional. Now listen to the two of you, the trial. Listen to John Podhoritz in commentary recently. A door to nihilistic evil once opened must be locked, nailed shut, epoxied, bricked up, and then after that, hardened from assault like a nuclear silo. That, that is the justification for the impeachment. The, the events of January 6th were incepted, encouraged, galvanized, and implicitly directed by Donald Trump. Close quote. Something 
so repugnant happened that the nation needs to condemn it. And yet there is Richard Epstein and there is John Yu and Richard is slicing and dicing his legal arguments very finely and John is drawing histor historical parallels and you're both saying, I don't care how bad it was, the constitution prevents us from doing anything about it. No, Richard? That's, not what, that's not what I said. <laughs> uh, what I said was it prevents an impeachment, but there's no immunity to bringing a criminal prosecution in the ordinary course of law which will have this advantage. If you're gonna do it correctly, it will have some legitimation when the result comes out. But if this is a kangaroo court, which is the way in which it looks to me right now, there are 75 or so million Trump supporters out there who will simply say this is another ugly illustration of the way in which the deep state takes after our people. And this thing will have no uh, justification whatsoever. It will make it much more difficult for Joe Biden to govern because he has been embarrassingly silent on this whole thing. Uh, it turns out that the correct view for the sitting president of the United States right now is to say, I wish the government, I do not wish to see this trial go forward, but he does not have the moral courage or the good sense or some combination of the two to say this. So bring your criminal prosecution, get your best prosecutors if you want to do it. My view is that at this particular point, it's very different. You can't do it in a week. You're going to have duties to turn over every piece of evidence that you get to the other side, and you're going to get that timeline study, and you're going to get it in great particularity. In a criminal which, proceeding. Yeah, in a criminal. But you're going to also get the question of whether or not what he said or didn't say made any difference given all the other things that went on at this particular point in time. So why would you want to have a thoroughly irresponsible proceeding presided over by a partisan in this particular case who's already voted to get him out of office when you could get a neutral tribunal to do this in an ordinary fashion? I think that this is a national scandal. John. Uh, I hate to accuse our common friend, John Podhoritz of this, but I would say he's, his words there are uh, just as rash and impulsive as the actions of the president he wants to lock up forever. And this is a feature, I think, of the Trump presidency. Maybe this is a way to close the door yeah. on the Trump presidency. This is something that's always struck me about it, is that uh, the people who accused him of being so unpresidential, such a threat to the Constitution, themselves wanted to distort the Constitution in order to get him. And I would say you don't need to do that here. I think actually you look at the end result, the constitutional system has worked. Uh, Trump did not manage to change the outcome of the Electoral College, which dispersed authority throughout all the states to pick the president. He didn't manage to convince Pre Vice President Pence to reject any electoral votes. And in the end, the American people rendered the verdict on Donald Trump. Think about impeachment. The two uh, punishments are removal from office and disqualification. The American people already voted to remove President Trump from office on November 4th. He's not serving as president right now. And the American people can disqualify President Trump from office simply by never electing him to a federal office again. So I would say, you know, this it reminds me of, you know, this comedy about the man of all seasons and Sir Thomas More. If you cut all the laws down to get at the devil and the devil turns around on you, you have no laws to hide behind anymore. And I fear sometimes uh, our friends like John Pahors and other critics of the president are willing to chop down some of the constitutional protections for all of us because they're so after getting Donald Trump the bad man. I have one sentence to make, Peter. Is I, You know I called for Trump's resignation in January of 2007. You called for Trump to resign the day after he took office, Richard. Yes, because, you cannot be described as a Trump supporter. Yeah, And the reason I did in part 
because not only is his behavior so disgusting, but he has the rare capability of bringing out the worst possible behavior in his enemies who mm. have behaved in many cases every bit as bad as he did. If you had somebody in there less polarizing, the Democrats would be in a far better place today than they are. Okay. A question that gets at that. I've only got another couple of questions here, and these are both relatively brief. Well, until, until they <laughs> until get to we Richard, they are. <laughs> <laughs> Elapsed time. From the first impeachment of a president, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, to the hearings for the impeachment of Richard Nixon, 105 years. From the Nixon hearings to the impeachment of Bill Clinton, 25 years. From the Clinton impeachment to the first impeachment of Donald Trump, 21 years. From the first impeachment of Donald Trump to the second, one year. Does this start to feel to you like something from the pages of Gibbons? Are we, are we at the late stage of the Roman Republic here? Are institutions just breaking down? Or was it a once in a century hurricane named Donald Trump and it's over and things will go back to normal and the institutions will resume their functions? Andy. Uh, Bush lied, people died. Remember that? Of course um, I do. There's nothing singular about, I mean, there's many things that you could say are singular about Donald Trump, but um, I think it's a matter of degree rather than a difference in kind, the way he's been treated compared to the last Republican incumbent. And I have to say, when the next Republican incumbent comes along, they'll be at the point finally of, of favorably saying things about Trump in order to relatively speaking, make that next person look even worse. So I think the sickness here is in the political culture. And what we haven't factored in is how much has the way the media is today, it's not just the institutions, it's one institution, I think, in particular, that has turned being elected to be a member of Congress into basically being a television celebrity who delegates his actual job to the bureaucracy or to the executive branch or to the courts while these guys want to be, you know, cable news stars. And I, I would have hoped that because the last impeachment last year was such a dud on television that maybe we would have gotten, you know, more years between then and the next impeachment. Um, but I do think that this is all about political theater more than anything else. And the sickness is the current culture and particularly the media effect on our politics. Richard, think things are breaking down or Donald Trump, he's yeah, in Mar-a-Lago. Let us go through the record, right? I mean, what we did is we had the hearing with respect to Kavanaugh and there were charges that were made uh, that were presented in the most irregular fashion imaginable. I regard them as having been totally false, uh, but the whole thing was never resolved because he was narrowly important. There were people who submitted false affidavits who espoused the court, right? And they managed to spur an investigation. There was Jim Comey, who in an act of courage had a friend of his, David Richland, announced that there was something wrong with what was going on because he knew if he had said it, he would have never been able to trigger the hearing. Who then runs the hearing? It's a Comey buddy um, who turns out to be Robert Mueller, appointed by another buddy, Rosenstein and so forth. Um, uh, the prosecution of Michael Flynn, uh, associated with the Logan Act and so forth. These are all utterly groundless kinds of proceedings as far as I can tell. 
And the great irony about this is if you now ask me, and I'm going to ask Andy, who knows more about this, which prosecution was initiated by Donald Trump, which essentially was done exclusively and solely for political motivations? I am not aware of any, whereas I think the behavior on the other side has been that great. And when you cover yourself in glory by virtue of the fact you're trying to take down somebody whom you hate, what you do is you make the fundamental mistake. Guilt or innocence is one thing, political desirability is another. And just because you want to vote against a man does not mean that you can oppose phony criminal charges in an effort to get him and some of his Confederates out of office. So I'm gonna ask Andy and John, is there a single prosecution in the system uh, that either Jeff Sessions or it turns out Bill Barr initiated or while in office as attorney general? I think no, John, I, you could correct me if I'm wrong. I think the answer to that is no, That's it may I mean. not be because of Trump. I think it's because he agitated for it and he's, his attorneys general took care of him to make sure they didn't uh, well, but allow him to go but into that folly. Nobody took care of the guys on the other side. Nobody took care of Adam Schiff, right? When he put these things out, they fried it. And then when the FISA court gets a guy who admits the crime, what they do is they give him time. They don't even give him time in jail. That's a high crime and misdemeanor as it was to submit fraudulent affidavits uh, to a FISA court in order to propel an investigation. I mean, the enormity of these kinds of offenses, and they're always justified, well, it's that guy we're going after. And I think in effect, the rule of law does not matter very much when you have your friends being tried. The point is it's really important when the people who are being tried are people whom you hate for religious, personal, or political reasons, and then you say uh, that justifies these kinds of fraudulent statements. That's where the real rot comes in. It's not just the impeachment, Peter. This is the last of a repeated set of things that have gone on for the last four years. All of them, as best I can tell, are proved unfounded. And when you try to figure out what Donald Trump did, what you can say is he talked to his attorney general who didn't listen to him. Trump is a gas bag. He'll say all sorts of stupid things all sorts of times. The question is, did he ever overrule them when he could have? And the answer is, this guy's bark is worse than his bite. And the other guy's bite is every bit as bad as their bark. I very tentatively, John, set up the question, essentially, is America doomed or can we all cheer up? And Richard took it and made it even worse. <laughs> John? Uh, uh, two points. Uh, you know, one is, let me, you know, Peter, you keep saying, making it sound like I live in the 18th century. There are a lot of uh, positive things about the 18th century compared to now, but uh, <laughs> dental care and things like healthcare are not one. So I still like the 21st century better. But let me make an 18th century point, which is uh, one of the innovations of the founders was the creation of an independent presidency. Uh, you know, one that's not collect, uh, elected by Congress. Uh, they wanted to make it really difficult for Congress to remove the president, which is why impeachment is so hard. And they really expected the people to do the job of removing presidents at the elections. And so one thing to be cautious of is that overuse or misuse of the impeachment power, even stretching it a little farther by saying, let's impeach now former presidents, uh, will represent more congressional control over a president. You could say, if you're going to turn this into a partisan tool, if you're a House and you don't like the president, why not impeach him on day one, just like Richard said, I want Trump to resign on day one. And then the Senate can try that president anytime for decades. Mm. I mean, you can mm. see this being turned into a partisan tool of congressional control over president. And so that's why I think we should resist it even now in the 21st century. Turns you, you know, I love your point about the Roman Republic. Uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton, who 
Uh, when he chose his uh, person he most wanted to be like, he chose Julius Caesar. Well, you could say the Roman Republic had like 200 years. They did okay. But it wasn't so bad. The empire lasted for another 450 years. I don't know necessarily if we're on the road uh, to ruin. Americans are really unusual in that we're constantly worried about these cycles of history. And is America right? no longer great anymore? As, as Andy pointed out, we've been through these cycles before. And I've been always impressed. You look at American history, how we have been able to rejuvenate ourselves and move past these crises. I think the 1970s and 1980s were worse, we're and bad. not just because of the ties and the clothes, but because we were facing <laughs> right Nixon and Watergate, and we faced the Russians and the Soviet Union. I still think we are still America is still doing very, very well. The material conditions are really great. All we have to worry about is China, but I don't see this as our Gibbons and internal deterioration of our constitutional system and collapsing into some kind of dictatorship. Thank you, John. I feel much better now. Last question. I promise. Last question, because I'm getting notes from our producer who's suggesting that if I don't bring this to an end, it's going to last longer than the trial will last. Last question. 50 Democrats in the Senate, 50 Republicans. Kamala Harris would break a tie if it came to that. Although uh, you need to convict by two thirds. So let's suppose all 50 Democrats vote to convict, that would require 17 Republicans to vote to convict. How many will do so? Prediction time. How many will do so? Just how many, Richard? At most four or five. At most four or five, John? And they may not because the people could object on the jurisdictional ground and still agree with Andy on the merits. Yes, yes. Actually, that I, sorry. Go ahead, John. I actually think maybe just two. I think actually that the number of Republicans is going to get smaller because I think these proceedings are looking more and more unfair. Andy? Seven, if they have a powerful presentation, of uh, especially the video evidence of what went on, uh, and you have you may add one or two to the five who are inclined to go the other way. And I don't think, Peter, that Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris uh, has any role in this. These, only the Senate gets to vote on this. That's right. But she should preside. She's right. She's president of the Senate. Is but she's she not, not a member of the Senate. She's not a member of the Senate. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for that correction. All right, fellas. Absolutely fascinating. Could easily continue for another three hours, but we won't. Richard Epstein, Andy McCarthy, and John Yu, thank you. Thank Thanks you so much. Thanks. For, for it was fun, mom. wasn't it, Andy? Andy it was fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Andy, I, it did, didn't start too well for Andy, but he's did he's 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 as we knew he would. The man from New Jersey held his ground. The common prosecutorial trick to start with weakness crescendo. <laughs> your winning argument at the end in front of the closing jury. Come on. <laughs> for uncommon knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation. I'm Peter Robinson. <laughs>